Hello, you're listening to the Feed the Ball Salon podcast. I'm Derek Duncan, architecture editor at Golf Digest. This is volume 15, and soon, joining my co-host, golf course designer and builder Jim Urbina and me inside the salon, will be noted Canadian golf designer, Ian Andrew. A few weeks ago on Twitter, someone bumped to the top of the threads the original conversation I had with Ian Andrew on the Feed the Ball podcast way back in episode 14. That episode was always one of my favorites. The conversation Ian and I had was one of the most intellectually stimulating and interesting discussions about the contemporary state of golf course architecture and numerous other topics. Ian has always been one of the great podcast guests in golf and golf architecture-related topics, and seeing that old interview be revived on Twitter made me nostalgic. I went to Jim Urbina and asked if he'd be interested in talking to Ian Andrew, and before I even could complete the sentence, he said, yes, absolutely. Both of us hold Ian in the highest regard, both for his ability to think contextually, originally, and openly and honestly, and also for his skills when it comes to designing and thinking about golf courses. So we invited him back, and I think you're going to enjoy this discussion. It did not disappoint. Ian, Jim, and I talk about golf course preservation, Canadian architecture, Stanley Thompson, St. George's, blending golf design with the surrounding environment, and numerous other topics. I know you'll enjoy it. Before we get to that talk, I would like to encourage you to go to wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to Feed the Ball and Feed the Ball Salon. And while you're there, please leave a rating and review. Give me the feedback of what you think. Also, give me a follow on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Feed the Ball there. And now, let's not waste any more time. Let's get into the talk with Ian Andrew. You know, Jim, we're talking to Ian Andrew today, and I don't know if you know this, but I had Ian on the Feed the Ball podcast quite a while ago. It was actually, I looked it up, it was episode 14, so it was kind of in the early days, and I'm not sure I had uh, as much feedback on any uh, podcast, certainly up to that point, than I had with, with Ian. We got into some really kind of broad discussions about the state of contemporary architecture, and it was one of the most kind of rich, full, almost philosophical conversations I'd had to that point in, in, in many respects since then. So uh, I was very eager to have Ian back on. I wanted to have him back on for a long time. I know there's a lot to talk about, but just for our listeners right now, you know, Ian's a, a very well-known uh, golf course architect based out of Canada. Uh, he uh, has experience, basically, he's touched us about every major and uh, non-major golf course in that country, and, and he works in the United States as well, and uh, just very smart guy, really fun to talk to, so I can't wait to get into it. I agree totally. I've I've spent time with Ian. I've seen him on golf courses. We've spent time together. He's so fun to talk to. He's ready to discuss any type of architectural uh, design theory He's ready to talk about almost anything to do with golf, and he's so casual in in his in his presentation, and he's so uh, warming to talk to. And I know <clears throat> uh, over the years his love affair with Stanley Thompson, a person that I've really not spent a lot of time with because uh, most of his and and all almost all of his golf courses, the best golf courses Stanley Thompson did are in Canada. But I was so moved <clears throat> by. One of the first Stanley Thompson courses I'd ever seen, and I saw this golf course, Capilano, in 1984, believe it, 1984, Capilano. And I thought to myself, uh, this is in Vancouver, British Columbia, I thought, God, this guy's different. 
way different in, in the study of golf course architecture. And remember, I had just started my profession uh, in 1982. So in 1984, seeing Capilano, uh, have you seen the golf course? Not Capilano. I just, it's, it's a study in architecture uh, on the side of a mountain. The, the views are unbelievable. And if I don't, if you don't mind, I'd like to read you this quote from Stanley Thompson. Sure. And it talks about what he thinks in, in, in the way he lays out golf courses. Great. Let's hear it. And I quote, golf course architecture is the melding of art, science, engineering, environment, recreational outdoor kinetics, and appreciation of introspection. Training for the profession goes well beyond the realm of formal academia. And I think to myself, if that's what he thought, and that's what Stanley Thompson stands for, playing Capilano and seeing how he routed and designed this golf course in Vancouver, British Columbia, in a, in a part of Vancouver they call West Van, was out of sight, out of mind. It's unbelievable. And I look forward to talking to Ian about a lot of things today, but really about what he has grasped, grasped from Stanley Thompson and his work across all of Canada. He's like the national hero of golf yeah. architecture in Canada. Yeah, he is. And uh, like I said, Ian's seen them all. He, he wrote a book on Stanley Thompson. It came out last year and it was about, five, you know, kind of like studies on five of Stanley Thompson's greatest courses and what, what we can learn by studying those golf courses. And, you know, that's what, and I know the esteem that Ian holds Stanley Thompson in. So we're going to, we're going to, you know, definitely spend some time talking about Thompson. And I want to ask Ian, you know, what, what can we learn from Thompson? What, what made Thompson so special and so unique? And uh, I, I think when I think about that, I wonder about when we had this conversation before, Jim, sort of about, you know, calling cards as an architect or, or like, what are you known for? And I want to know, I want to see if there's, you know, one thing or two things above all else that Stanley Thompson is known for in Ian Andrews' eyes, you know, something that other art, architects could learn from him. And then I started to think, Jim, I want to ask you this question, you know, thinking about the big Mac review, you know, we've had so much discussion together, you and I on these podcasts, but I'm just curious. I don't know if I've ever asked you this. What did, what are your highest design ideals? You know, is there, could, would you be able to articulate one essential element that you would try to get across in all of your designs if possible? Great question. I don't know that I could say one exact thing that I try to get across, but I do know that when I've been studying landforms, when I look at golf courses, when I play golf courses, the underlying fact factor for me is how much fun was it to play? How many different ways could I play the ball? And in the end, did the lay of the land, did the golf course that I played, did it do everything that it could do for me as a golfer, average golfer, not an elite golfer, Derek, an average golfer, did it do everything for me to want me to come back and play again? Fun factor, as I always say, um, lay of the land, the use of the land, the shots that I could play, not requiring me to do the same shot on every hole. And that's 
what I look for. I don't know if I could make it a very sexy quote like a lot of Golden Age architects did, but I know what I know and I know what I like. And the underlying factor is, did I have fun playing it? Did it require me to think, use all the shots? And I think many Golden Age architects have and are shown and have proved that uh, what I believe is, is, is what they have done all along. And I think Stanley Thompson is one of them. And Capilano, I haven't seen all of Stanley Thompson's greatest, but Capilano surely introduced me to a, to a style of architecture that I could, I could do every day. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I hear what you're saying and I think I probably agree. And I think you and I would probably sense the same things on, on the same golf course or sense similar things, but it's kind of, it's kind of like a feeling that you get on a certain golf hole or a certain golf course that where, you know, your senses are just excited. You see the possibilities versus being on another style of golf course where, you know, you feel much more limited and I don't, I personally wouldn't necessarily put it in a category of old golf courses versus new golf courses. It's just the style of golf, you know, and, and it just, you know, you just, you see that, like I said, you see the possibilities and it goes back to some of the old quotes that you've read on this podcast before about, you know, pushing the boundaries out and, and just, you know, sort of evaluating the, all the, the potential that, that you see in front of you. And there are certain golf courses where you feel that instinctively, uh, subliminally maybe, uh, or overtly and others where, you, you know, you just, you, you realize, you know, you're, you're there to, you're pressed to play a certain style of golf. That's what the architecture demands. But I'll, I'll ask you this. Is there one hole that you've built or been involved in building that sort of best captures that spirit or of, of you and who you are and, and who you would aspire to be as an, as an architect and a designer? Man, <laughs> uh, <laughs> You're supposed to let me know what you're going to talk about. <laughs> There's many holes, you know, and there are many ways to answer that question. I think of my favorite holes at Prairie Dunes. I think of my favorite holes at the National Golf Links of America. I think of my favorite holes at St. Andrews. You know, I can't say just one, but I can tell you the experience of, of hitting a shot up and over. Uh, and wondering what the golf, where the ball will land uh, at the Alps, at the National, or the Himalayas at Presswick. You, you think to yourself, uh, the, what, what am I going to experience once I go over that dune? Because you're right, it's not fair to judge old and new, because each, even new golf courses uh, give you that sense of uh, exhilaration. But a golf hole like the Himalayas at Presswick, when the caddy stands on top of the dune and you hit your shot and he gives you the thumbs up or the thumbs down, <laughs> it doesn't get any better than that. But I don't get to see where my ball lands. I just know that I've somehow succeeded and got close to the pin. And that's just by a simple thumbs up, thumbs down. Is that true architecture, Derek? You know, I'm not sure. I didn't get to see my ball land and, 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 and enjoy the exhilaration of getting close to the pin. But there's something about hitting up and over and wondering as you walk to the next uh, green, wondering if you made that shot successfully, the enjoyment when you get over the hill to see that you did. Blind shots, 
I, should, I wouldn't say they belong on every golf course, but there is that sense of exhilaration when you come up and over and you've found that you've done a good job. Some would say not so good of an idea because when you've lost your ball, you have no idea where it went. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but there is that exhilaration of an up and over, a blind shot. And, you know, I'm going to be prepared next time you ask that question. I'm going to give you 10 golf holes that are my favorites. Okay, we'll do that for next time. I didn't. I didn't want to t- cue you up too easily. I didn't, I didn't make you sweat for that one a little bit. Well, I just. I just think of the tenth at, at Riviera, one of my all-time favorite short holes, and, and I think of the fifteenth hole or the eighteenth hole of Pebble Beach, playing along the ocean and the walk, and and I could go on and on. Those every each one of those holes gives you a different exhilaration, just as I explained to you the the uh, the, the Himalayas at, right. at uh, Presswick. Third at Old McDonald. Third at Old McDonald. In modern over. golf, there's probably no better, no better. I mean, there might be equals, but that's one of the greatest reveals, you know, in modern architecture. And it's unbelievable to to know that you've conquered something, uh, but the anticipation, it, the gratification isn't instant. You know, today's golfer wants instant gratification. There's something to be said about an up and over or a blind shot that you don't you don't know how you've done until you've got there. Uh, and that walk, that timeless walk to get there, and and the 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 acceptance or the denial that man that was a great shot or that was awful. That's a cool thing in golf. Another hole at Old McDonald's that really captures what what my interpretation of what you're talking about is the 15th, the long par five, and you're standing on that tee and you just see this vast slithering hole out in front of you and it's wide and it and it goes up and down and you can see the green in the distance and if the light's hitting it a certain way you know it, it just sort of like sits there calling to you and there's a there's a million different ways to play it you know whether the wind's coming from different angles into you behind you across you know you could play that hole over and over again and just have endless outcomes and and it's just it, it's the kind of the almost even the opposite of what you're talking about the blind shot it's not blind it's everything is right there you see everything and yet it's just a journey that is awaiting you uh, th- that to me captures that spirit of 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 multiplicity and options and and fun and you know you're on the tee and you don't know what's going to happen when you finally hole out you don't know what that journey was going to be like but yeah, you know that true. it was going to be a journey there was going to be some sort of story that was told between the tee ball and the last putt that's and that true. sort of sums up that that feeling of 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 inspiration and, and joy and curiosity that makes golf great for most of us agreed you know uh, uh... I could. I was just there. I was just at Bandon Dunes Resort uh, over the holiday, uh, seeing my son, and I thought to myself, "You're absolutely right. The hole you're describing is called Westward Ho, and you're playing to the ocean. And you're right. You get to see it all in front of you. And as you make that journey, it it it, it has its rewards and its pitfalls all the way. Yeah. The 18th hole at Capilano, same way. You see the flag." You don't see the surface of the green, and you're playing for the home hole and the beauty of the mountainside. And you're going to get there eventually. It's the journey that gets you from tea to green that, that, that is most rewarding. I can't disagree with you more. Well, maybe we'll ask, maybe I'll surprise Ian with that question as well. Ask him. Please do. So I want to see how he's. I want to see him right, right like at the beginning with something that he's not expecting. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see him stutter, see if he stutters like me. I know he won't. He's so he's so well versed. He's so well spoken. Uh, people will enjoy this. 
Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So uh, I think now's a good time to uh, to bring Ian in, and we'll talk to him on the flip side. All right, great. Thank you. All right, here we go. Well, Ian, uh, before we jumped on, Jim and I did our recorded our intro that we normally do with these, and I kind of sprung a question on him and asked we the part of a longer, bigger discussion about you know do architects should they or or do they have sort of an overriding style or a calling card? Some you would say would over the years historically. Others, you know, you'd have to look a little deeper into it to maybe surmise. But I asked Jim in his work and. Uh, did he have a, a calling card or did, is there an expression that he would always want to get out of himself and put into his work if possible? And what might that be? And then I also ask him specifically, is there a, a hole that he has built or been involved with building that kind of represents the, his vision of architecture and design and his enthusiasm? Could, could we see that in the ground? And I'll ask you the same question is, does Ian Andrew have a calling card or a, a, a thought process that he hopes that will that the the, the golfer will be able to take out of a, a, an experience playing a, a golf course that you've been involved in building. Uh, it definitely, it's choose your own path. Um, I'm a big believer in uh, as as long as the golfer has options and the golfer has choices um, and multiple ways to achieve the end, then. I've done what I needed to do to make it interesting. Um, so I would say, funny enough, I'd say in that way, Max Baer may be the most influential person in my career. Uh, just simply some of his writings about uh, the freedom to choose. I, it really resonated with me when I read that the first time. I have a hard Not time getting through Max Baer. <laughs> That's some, <laughs> some dense writing. I got to really unpack that. <laughs> But the, there you go, Derek. He hits, he nails it on the head, and then he pulls out Max Bear, yeah. who 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 you have to be at about a ten level to understand and read. <laughs> I took me a hundred times to read it. Ian pops it out like that. Well, where, where does that leave a, a golf course like Winged Foot, uh, where I would not say that that golf course traditionally, in a traditional way of thinking, leaves you with a lot of options or, or choose your own adventures? Is that not as appealing uh, of a golf experience to you? No, funny enough, it's one of my favorite golf courses. I think it may be the greatest created landscape off a very average, at best, average site. Um, I think um, we need a lot of different things, and I do think it's important to have places like that, um, like the Oakmonts of the world, although I think Oakmonts a little more flexible, um, that put extreme pressure on, on your abilities. It's a place to go and then find out have the improvements that you've made or have has the work, will it hold up? And, and I think you have to have 10% of the game needs to have um, a, exert a lot of pressure. And then I think 90% of the game should in, largely be encouraging. I think if we could break golf down that way in very general terms, I think we'd actually enjoy golf a lot more. Uh, I personally prefer to go and play something that's a little bit more of a mix um, or leaning on the encouragement side. So a lot of the work that Jim's been involved in, uh, I find for me personally is encouraging, but I still have to hit some great shots. The thing about Wingfoot is you have to hit almost all great shots, but there is a little bit of flexibility there too. But we need places like that that let the best in the game or even the average person find out what they're made of and to see how they can they can 
react under pressure and under a lot of pressure. Um, the architecture of Wingfoot is exceptional and the fact that it's built um, is mind blowing to me. And Ian, I answered Derek's question with a fun, mine was having fun playing golf, enjoying the experience. I would say that Wingfoot is not much fun, but you would counter by saying it tests every facet of your game to see how good you really are. Is that fun for you? It's fun for me once in a while. Um, we've got a golf course up here called uh, National Golf Club of Canada. It, it is one-dimensional. I like to go there once in a while. I do not like it architecturally, um, which I'm sure there are fewer uncomfortable with me saying that out loud. Um, it's very one-dimensional, but I like to go there once in a while to find out uh, if I can actually get around home, which I've never managed to do there. So for me, it's just how long can I go without the car crash, which inevitably happens on one of the one of the holes. And and but I enjoy that as variety. I I also like to play public golf that's very rudimentary. I I do it every year. I'll play a couple of courses that anybody who's into golf architecture will go. Why are you going there? There's a lot of joy in in sometimes. Um, getting back to the grassroots of the game. Uh, it's why I've been to the UK uh, 10 different times. And one of the trips I made, I played nothing that anybody would really take much note of. And I would say that was one of the most enjoyable experiences I ever had because first of all, there's a lot of great holes, even in those unknown golf courses. There's always one, one or two holes where you go, my God, this is world class. Um, but just people aren't paying attention to it and because the rest of the golf course is a little weird. Um, but sometimes the uh, we get it, – it's nice to return to the what brought us joy when we first played. I started playing as a kid, and I played on a very rudimentary public golf course. Um, it's nice to feel that again. It's nice to feel like you're just playing. You're not trying to – be overwhelmed by something or um, uh, or that it has to be of a certain quality or vintage or whatever it whatever turns your your, your crank but um, if we get kind of stuck in that then we kind of miss out on what really drew us and kept us in the game early yeah that's a good point you know there's you come across people in the game that say you know life's too short to play crappy golf courses um, but I, I've feel like you do i grew up playing you know i didn't play what would be considered a top 300 500 golf course for you know until i was probably 20 years old you know i just did not come from an experience where i was exposed to what would be considered great architecture and i never missed it uh you know i looked at pictures in books and magazines and i said yeah i want to go to la quinta that looks amazing <laughs> but i had never had a chance to do that much less the wingfoots of the world that, that's that's as you said. That's how most people, many people, are uh, exposed to the game. That's their experience. I would say the majority of people who play golf, that's what they play every day. But it's that that common, average, utilitarian golf course that is really the lifeblood of the game. And we do ourselves a mis disservice if we ignored that or didn't occasionally dip our toes into that or go back to see that or hell play it all the time. You know, Ian, you talk about public golf courses getting back to the roots. And there's one or two holes on a public venue that you've played or you seek out. My question to both of you is, why can't there be 18 good holes on a public golf course? What happened to that? I think it exists. Um, Jim, did you work on Common Ground in uh, Denver? I did. 
I did. So Common Ground to me is a perfect example of what a public golf course should be. First of all, I thought it was excellent. I thought um, I thought it had a wonderful mixture of some really clever, clever um, um, hole types, as well as some stuff where um, you and the guys decided that you were going to do something a little bit more restrained. And I thought it had everything. I really enjoyed playing there a lot. That's a good example of um, just build some really great greens, ramp it up a little bit at times, take it down a notch a bit at times and, and have that variety. And that's an exceptional golf course. By the way, I would rather play common ground. I'm going to come full circle. I'd rather play common ground day in, day out than Wingfoot. I agree. The reason being is because <laughs> I would have a lot of fun. It's not a knock at Wingfoot. I, 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 Wingfoot is a remarkable piece of architecture I admire a lot. But to me, the wingfoots of the world are, are not where I want to be a member. I would like to just go there and play once in a blue moon. Uh, funny enough, I consider Wingfoot and Oakmont and a couple of those really tough golf. Pine Valley actually fits in it too. Love to go, love to go to those places every few years if they would allow me to do that. But I don't want to go there every even every year. I'm not really sure I want to do. It doesn't mean I don't admire them. It just means. I'd rather play the at a place like Common Ground, or for me, Jasper Park may be the ultimate reflection of just fun, um, beautiful, and clever. Um, it, it's my favorite mistress. When we talk about, you know, Jim asks, why can't you have 18 good holes on a public golf course? And of course you can, but it, it, it goes back to, well, what, what makes the golf hole good? What makes the golf hole good? Or do we get hung up? too much in conditioning because that seems like the biggest barrier to presenting public 18 good public golf holes is because the most people would you know look at the the, uh, the ragged edges of it and and have that be the reason why it, it's not appealing golf now there's also the architectural component too but i think the, the average public player is really more interested in having healthy grass and you know normal conditions rather than uh you know, bare patches and dried out areas and places that don't drain well. And so how much of that, how much of that gym is, is conditioning versus architecture when you can talk about the concept of 18 good public golf holes? Uh, that's fair. I, I believe that the conditioning, everybody wants a, a smooth rolling a green. I get that. Everybody wants a fair lie. I hate that word. You know, Ian, you said great. You hate the word great. I hate the word fair and unfair. You know, what, what does that mean? But, Derek, when I think about architecture and great architecture, Capilano, for one, every hole was outstanding. The beauty was perfect. The, the strategy was unbelievable. Stanley Thompson was the guy. Why couldn't every public golf course across the U.S. and Canada have that same experience on every hole? And I think it's past conditioning. I think it's more than conditioning, but it is a part of that, Derek. That's a fair statement. It is a part of that. I think one of the issues we get into is um, there's a basic primary rudimentary design idea, which is, I'll sum it up kind of with, uh, if you bunker inside left off the tee, you bunker inside right on the green. It's just, it's the most rudimentary idea within architecture. Obviously, there's a risk and reward element to that concept. But the problem is it's over, it, the over-reliance on that simple idea um, 
or what happens is that gets supplemented with maybe it's a bunker on both sides or a bunker on both sides of the green. But there's an over-reliance on the most basic premise of architecture. And the one problem with it is, yes, there's a risk and reward, but there really isn't additional options or additional ideas going on. It's just so basic and elementary. And one of the issues we run into in a lot of public golf is it it is it just comes down to a bare bones repeated strategy. It's kind of the criticism for some of the modern architects as well is bare bones works. Okay. But if bare bones is done for 14 holes, it's really, uh, it's almost more, it's really dull. Um, and, and the, I think that's what we run into a little bit in public golf. Um, yeah. Conditioning is an issue, but the other end of it is, um, it's essentially giving everybody uh, it's giving them a grade eight reader rather than maybe giving them something that's um, the end of high school in, in its word and language. And yet we really do actually respond to something where the language is maybe going to push us a little bit more, but we're going to get a little more out of the book. Agreed. That's what I want. I want to be pushed a little more and get a little more out of it, Derek. That's all. Just a little bit more out of it. There are three people here talking who, you know, are pretty pretty deep into golf course architecture. I mean, that's that's what we do. That's what we think about. I, I wonder when we're talking about this, if the eighty percent player, you know, the eighty percent of the golfing public would would agree with what we're saying right now. I mean, there are a lot of people that would, and have they been exposed? Maybe maybe the issue is they just haven't been exposed to it in a, in a situation that's really stimulating. That does have you know fair i don't mean fair as an fair unfair but fair conditions the 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 grass is healthy so i wonder if there if it's uh if people would really and i think about like my case study is always like my father you know when when he he uh i think is, is plays golf like a lot of people do and and would not appreciate a lot of like central bunkering you know like it's just that that mindset of it's hard enough to hit the ball straight and advance it. Um, I, I don't need all this additional mental stimulation. Um, so I, I just wonder if if the majority of golfers would would agree with us, and if they don't agree with us, is it because maybe they just haven't been exposed to it in a productive, really healthy environment? So I think there's a difference between being able to articulate. Um, these ideas as opposed to feel them. Golf is a really emotional experience. It's one of the things that we talk probably the least about in golf architecture circles is that our love of golf courses is an emotional response. Our feelings as we play are emotional highs and lows. The design of the whole elicits an emotional response, whether it's trepidation or whether it's Again, I swore I really got to watch myself this morning, um, or, or whether it's anticipation or excitement, or or and it, that has to do with opportunity and perseverance. A lot of that's subtle, but it doesn't mean we don't feel it. It 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 doesn't mean it doesn't take place when we play. I've I've played with a couple of friends of mine or high school friends, and they'll say, "I always love this place. I don't know why, but I really like playing here," and. You know, we as a group may be able to isolate individual things that they like after talking to them a bit, just because we're observers. Um, or if we pointed out 
you know, if we worked with them, we'd probably turn them into observers too, but they just emotionally connect. And I think that's the thing. I think sometimes, um, I remember when I was, a friend of mine gave me some advice with raising our kids, said that the one thing you'll notice is they know more than you think they do at every stage. And at certain points, see if you can kind of pick up where they are rather than where you think they are. And I wonder if we need to do that as well with the average golfer. Jim and I were talking about that before we came on about the the emotional experience of of that's and I'm the same way as you, Ian. I mean, I think that that is even as much as um, you know my job to some degree and your jobs are to sort of be analytical and think about these things in detail and piece them together and come up with uh, philosophical discussion points about them. It's an emotional experience when you, when you're in an environment an outdoor environment and standing on a tee and you see uh, an inviting landscape in front of you, that that's, that's a sensation. And, and that's the, that's the, the biggest point of golf. So I, I, just to kind of bring it back to the, the public golfer conversation, I sometimes wonder if, if really the, the ultimate goal should not be to think about strategies as much as thinking about that creating something that makes them feel something emotionally. And it could just be pure aesthetics. Not that, you know, and I'm not um, advocating we discard, disregard or, or discard uh, architecture, architecture and strategy and principles, but thinking really what does the, what does the player want? It might just be that emotional feeling of sensation that you get by standing someplace and looking at something that that's attractive to you. Um, I hope golf doesn't get to that point. I hope, I hope we continue to always build golf courses that, that are mentally stimulating as well as visually stimulating. But think of that rudimentary public golf course that we're talking about that maybe doesn't have 18 great holes. A lot of that is, I mean, if I, I this is cynical perhaps, but I think if, if you hired one of you two to go back and, and just jazz up the bunkers and, and make the bunker, these flat little ovals look kind of pop and, and flash them or put some, some fescue on the back edge. I think all of a sudden that rudimentary golf course is now considered a really interesting, entertaining sought after public golf course. And it has emotion. As you said, it has a sense of, uh, of uh, beauty, as you say, and it, it encapsulates what Ian was talking about, how we just want to go out and play and, 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 and be a part of the group, your friends, and have fun. Uh, fair enough, Derek, that you don't want your dad to struggle in a center line bunker where, where I would think that that would give the most strategy of any long hole. Mm-hmm. Or, or Ian would say, well, I gave you an option to go right or left of that center line hole. Maybe we just don't need that. And maybe we just want to elicit the fun factor, the emotional factor, the beauty factor, and leave well enough alone. Fair statement. I understand. I, I, I always kind of looked at Piners number two as a really good example for public golf. I know this is a, starts off as a weird idea. Um, it's a very difficult golf course for good players. And yet... I've played with a bunch of very average players and the thing they love most about it is you can't possibly lose a golf ball. Mm -hmm. That matters to them. But what matters to the really good players is you have a a hell of a time trying to shoot your handicap. Although funny enough, the higher your handicap is the more likely that that's doable because it is a game. If you're patient and um, you take a passive approach, uh, you can score. Uh, The story I like to tell is the day I learned, Everything, not everything I needed to know about architecture, but certainly the game changer for me was I played Pinehurst number two as a teenager with my father. 
and it was back when um according to those who can play i should have not understood architecture better because i was i could actually play the game um but i had a game that was very frustrating that day because i when i missed greens turned into big numbers my dad kept playing short my dad was a very good player and a very good short game player but he played short all day and he got up and down all day and he shot 74 75 i can't remember which of the numbers it is um and i had made the comment when we sat down for lunch that I played as good as I could and I didn't get much out of the game. I shot, I shot 80 or 81 or whatever it was, but I blew it. I flat out blew it because I hit the ball great. And um, my dad, and I said, you hit the ball like shit all day long. And my dad said, no, I never missed a shot. I just realized I couldn't play those shots. <laughs> so I took what the golf course was offering. So that just shows you that Pinehurst can be played in a passive way and effectively. Um, but what I love about Pinehurst is you play it the way you want. You take on whatever you want. You don't take on whatever you don't want to take on. You choose what you want to do all day. The experience is purely yours. You don't have to hit the shots. You can play multiple ways all day long, can't lose a golf ball. Um, and you know what? It's easy to build that golf course. It's not expensive. Okay, if you want to get into the stuff that um, Corin Crenshaw did uh with Kyle and everybody else of recent times. Yes, it's a little bit more to it. But if you just look at the bare bones of the golf course, it's fairly simple and it's very easy to build. And it's, it's not even a main, there is some maintenance to do with trying to keep natural areas natural, but it's not a maintenance nightmare. I can think of a lot of places that are a maintenance nightmare that are not near as hard or as fun. It's, it's funny. I, I do think it's one of those golf courses that really adapts. And I think as architects, if we can make golf courses that ad adapt to both ends, again, I do believe there's a, there's a, a world for wingfoots to exist, but I do believe in general, if Jim and I, if we were asked to do something, if we could build something that kind of touches on both sides, that's actually what we've got to do. We've got to give them, Bam Springs is the best example I can give you. If you're good, you've got to keep taking on the bunkering. It's all carry lines. It's full of carry lines. And you have to take it on. You have to take on the trouble. To score, you've got to attack. And you've got no choice. But if you're, uh, as Stanley called them, a dub, you can play wide, you can play short and wide, and you can pitch on, and you can play for your pars or um, two-pot for your bogeys. And you can do it all day without taking on anything. Perfect golf course. Mm -hmm. Was Except that the genius, the by the way? Was, was that the genius of Stanley Thompson? Yes, Stanley designed actually for the average player first. The exception was um, St. George's. They designed that to be uh, a test for the Canadian Open right off the bat, or right off the bat. But funny enough, uh, while he triangulated, which was an interesting choice at the time, um, it's still very wide. Even even in that time, it was quite wide. So. Um, it was just a lot of pressure at the greens and a lot of pressure at the shots to the greens. Because I told Derek that one of my first golf courses I ever saw was uh, Capilano in 1984, believe it or not, Ian. 1984. Is it time? There's the is it time for me? To... <laughs> yeah, just one right over. Now. Oh, class is just half over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I played Capilano, Ian, 1984. I thought it was the most unbelievable routing, unbelievable setting beauty and uh had a lot of fun playing 
is Capilano on – I have not played Banff. Is Capilano on the greatness of, 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 of Banff and all the other Stanley Thompson golf courses? I years ago referred to them as the big five. I think if you really want to get a feel for Stanley Thompson, you need to see Capilano, Jasper, Banff, St. George's, and then Highland Links. I think the five stand out from all his other work. The interesting thing is it's a 20-year run where every job links to the next job, the people involved link to the next job, and um, the the budget was not the same as uh, at Highland Links, um, but he had unlimited land on all five jobs, which made a, a difference. Capilano was a little more complicated. I've, I've gone through all the rooting plans because I managed to find them in the Olmsted archives. He went through a lot of different things, but he did get actually to set the, the land that they chose. The remarkable thing for me is it's 320 feet of elevation and walkable. Unbelievable. Um, he under, the, the magic of Capilano is he understood the idea of you can't walk straight down the hill and you can't, everybody knows you can't walk straight up the hill. If you walk 300 feet up, you're going to feel that in your legs for the next hour and a half. So he staggered the, the way you went up. You go up a steep spot and then you go across and then you go up and then you go across and he does that. And it, it, it's like, um, it's like a stair, it's like a staircase up the house where you have the transitions. He did the same on the downside, and that's what everybody misses in the routing. Part of the magic is he also goes across the property on the way down, too. And because you can't walk down 300 feet without your – it's actually worse to walk down 300 feet. Your legs will burn greater than they will trying to go up 300 feet because after a while, the lactic acid would build up to a point you can't play. And so what makes Capilano remarkable is the fact that he understood the idea of transitioning on the way down and on the way back up. Now, the interesting thing for you, Jim, did you know that 12 of the holes, are, obviously the holes are side by side often. Yeah. Yeah. Did you know there wasn't a single tree between those holes? <laughs> well, that, that he had designed them with the double width to get the views and to get the scale and then bunker down the middle. And that's why the I, bunkers are there. I didn't know that. Uh, I do know that the trees disguise the routing that you're actually going across at different angles. I know the trees disguise that. But I can tell you that if the top five that you describe, if they are as genius as Capilano, then Stanley Thompson deserves a much higher level of affection than we give that we give McDonald and McKenzie and all the other greats in America. Well, Ian, you've you've said that you consider Thompson one of the five greatest designers of all time. So he's clearly up there already in, in your estimation. What What is something that, or what is the main thing, or if there is a main thing, but what, what can the world of architecture get from Stanley Thompson? What can they learn from him? What was he especially good at? And, and what were his skills that put him in the top five in your, in your mind, at least? Um, one of the interesting things he did was the... Um, uh, like he was so Stanley was incredibly well read and and so he was familiar with um, the English landscape uh, designers and he used the concept of borrowed scenery and uh, you're gonna have to help me on this one I think it's Repton but I have the feeling it's no, it's it might be capability is it Ruskin Ruskin thank is you. that who you, the, um, the English uh, the philosopher yes. yeah he was, and, and and so the interesting thing about that is obviously, um, if you think Jasper's most famous 
for its routing because it it actually lines up with 18 peaks. I would argue that he actually shares one of them, but um, essentially it's a, it's a reasonable thing. And I, I've been asked a number of times, do you believe you actually planned that? And in very um, general terms, I think he did. I think what he did was he, he found his routing, but I think he also skewed the routing when he had the ability to use different faces um, uh, around uh, the Jasper Valley, because Jasper Valley is actually a really large bowl. Um, but what's really interesting is when you look at Banff Springs, uh, Jeff Cornish told me that, um, you know, he told the men to look up in the mountains and, and get the, get the snow pack to be the bunkers and to get the mountain peaks or the, the ridge tops to be the top of the, and he used those to actually direct them on how he wanted to get some of the shaping around the bunkers done. And I can show you two spots on Highland Links. When you look at the back of the first green, the ridge line on the back of the first green is Ben Franny in the distance. It's almost a, a, a duplicate of the way the, the ridge line is done. And then he's done it again on the fourth. And the fourth, you can clearly see the matching ridge. Uh, you can see the where the sharp face of Franny is. You can see that actually in the mountain. You can see that whole feature. And the fact that he understood um, uh, that if you took things that you saw, it's kind of like Mackenzie's idea of using the uh, if this, again, you can verify the story on this one. I'm not as familiar, but the idea of the fifth hole at Cypress Point, Mackenzie used the canopies of the trees to create the, the, the complexity in the bunkers in the foreground. Um, the, the idea of using what's already in view and, and emulating it or replicating is too strong a word, but at least emulating it um, is a really clever idea. And it's something that he was particularly good at was taking pieces of what he saw and, and using them or taking um, Highlands has got a magical green site where he took the least obvious route in his choice of green sites. But again, it, it's, it's accepting what you saw. And because the background is, is, um, Oh, what's the Island called? Sorry. I wish I could remember the Island, but the, uh, the, uh, the background is the Island in the ocean, but by setting the green down in the punch bowl behind, instead of on top of the Ridge, it puts the focus on the, the landscape beyond. And it was a remarkable choice play-wise because it's really interesting because it's a huge mound in front and you've got to kind of bounce the ball off of it and try to figure out how to get the ball to it. But the other end of it is if you think about the whole as a, a, a landscape piece, a set piece, you look at the ocean first. You look at the island in the distance because it lines up beautifully with it. You actually take in the setting, then you take in the golf yeah. ball. And he does it over and over at Banff. He does it at Capilano as well. You look at the city below on, on uh, four and uh, five and six were a lot more clear than that, Jim. Yeah. Uh, you look at the city below, and then you look at the golf hole. And in fact, I would argue on six, uh, you really can't see where you're hitting the ball. And I think that's part of the joy. You actually just look at the city instead and hit the ball at the city. It wasn't. A, it didn't look like that as a city. Oh, no. But, but, city that, yeah, but that right. bridge was there right away. They built the bridge with the project. Yep. And Derek, the cool thing about playing Capilano is you work your way down the front nine, or so to speak, the front six or seven. The, the whole city of Vancouver is in your eye, peeking through the trees, as Ian says, when it used to be all void of trees within the get setting itself. The, the views must have been splendid. Yeah, wasn't void of trees, but it was just a lot thinner, Jim. Yeah, you know what yeah. you're talking about—the way that Thompson 
uses the surrounding nature and riffs on that in creative some of his features, whether it's the the the, the ground behind a green as a skyline or the bunker shaping. That seems so elemental to what would make his work appealing. But I imagine how much of that has been eroded and lost and designed out of his work over the decades. And is that what you do essentially when you work on his courses is try to go in and restore that? Yeah, a lot of, uh, uh, almost all work seems to always begin with tree removal. Um, I, Highland Links, we removed 10 acres of trees. And that was just trying to get some of the old, there used to be the view of the ocean on 14 holes. It was down to, I think, four or five. Um, yes, the, the, uh, there's a lot of um, in-growth. Uh, some places are really good. Uh, Jasper um, always maintained its corridors. Um, Banff was, was good, but had grown in a bit. Um, Capilano, uh, St. George's, somewhat it actually looks pretty good now but capilano's definitely grown in but highlands was like completely overgrown at one point um yeah and you've you when when you've got holes based upon the setting and based upon scale and based upon ground contours first and it's all grown in you've kind of lost the, the the magic charm that sort of um you enjoy when you go there the the interesting thing about Highland Links, just to speak of that one specifically, is it's like a course in geography. You go there, you start on a, a headland, you work your way down to the ocean. There were dunes actually on the fourth, on the um, fourth and sixth holes. Um, they disappeared with, for top dressing, of course. <laughs> um, and then you go up the through the mountain pass, and then you go into the Clyburn Valley where they used to farm, but that was wide open, and you you were. Uh, in that flash valley with the the 700 to 1,000 foot faces that are, are they're not even 45s, they're steeper than that. And then you work your way back out to the headland, uh, uh, out into the highlands, and then you work your way out to the headlands. You you touch all these geographies, and and it, it, every time he went from one area to another, he has long walks. I don't know whether this is intended or just one of these magical. A uh, set of circumstances that that works well, but it's like it's like changing the 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 chapter in a book. You start a new chapter, you go into this new environment, and the funny part is he changes his architectural ideas from section to section as well. So when you enter into that um, mountain pass, that hole is way narrower than anything else in the golf course, and it's long and it's super hard. And then he opens you back out to expansive views, and there, but he's playing with you, and 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 I think a lot of that gets lost when you get uh, things growing in. You 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 lose the 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 subtle magic of of um, changing uh, space. Um, what's the Frank Lloyd Wright idea of? Um, um, he used really narrow hallways followed by. Um, open areas, but he, he used the narrow hallways to make the um, uh, open areas fe feel larger and more grand and more bright by using a, a, a narrow hall with very little lighting. Um, and I can't remember the name of it, but I, I believe that technique is used in architecture. I know David McClay Kidd used it intentionally on, 
on the fourth hole at Bandon uh, Dunes. You go through the narrow passage and right. then you turn and that's your first view of the ocean. Mm-hmm. But that's a, a very wide view. And I thought it was an extremely effective way of um, of doing that. And I can't, it's something in release. Um, compression. I can't come up. Compression, compression and release. release. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad I'm here with the smart kids. Um, but but the compression and release is is something that exists on that golf course. And if if the trees are not opened up the way they're supposed to be, you don't get that impact. So you're losing one of those, yes, subtle, but one of those magical qualities that we may not exactly get why we like it. Like I know when I played David's hole on the fourth, I you hit your tee ball, you get to that spot. And, and it's one of those holy S moments where you just go, wow, it doesn't actually matter. In many ways, it doesn't matter what David put in front of me for that point forward. He did a wonderful job, by the way, but it doesn't matter. He gave me a moment where my heart grew two sizes bigger. <laughs> um, and, and I just felt great about where I was. The fact that I was playing golf, the people I was with, Everything felt so good. It was a magical feeling. And we get that when, when an architect manages to put us in a place or to manipulate us. You know, um, uh, Prestwick has a really uh, wonderful nature. of um, It makes things super hard. Like it's got some of the hardest holes in golf. And then it turns around and gives you a drivable easy hole with very little to deal with. And you feel really great on those holes and you don't feel less about those holes. You don't go, I wish somebody would add some bunkers or do this. I don't. I go, thanks for the reprieve because I know you're going to kick, you're going to put the boots to me again sooner or later. And by the way, I think Presswick may be one of the best golf courses I've ever played. May never make a list, but it doesn't matter. It's the one that moves the needle for me almost the most. Same with me. me. Ian, you talk about Capilano, Banff, Highlands. Is there any other properties in Canada? Canada is a big, big, beautiful country. Is there any other places left to experience and build and design golf courses like Stanley Thompson had in the Golden Age? Yeah, there's lots. So the one of the big, it's like um, I know of uh, four significant dune sites in Ontario. And Ontario is not exactly where I'd go looking for dunes if I was somebody looking <laughs> for dune sites. But they exist. But the thing is, they're also protected environments. Um, one of them may be a possibility, but it's a quirky spot to get to. Um, there's dunes in Newfoundland, which is called the rock because it's largely rock. But there are dunes out in Newfoundland. There's actually a lot of um, um, dunes and headland sites throughout Atlantic Canada. Um, BC, the amount of mountain golf possible. It's just what it all comes down to in Canada. The, the, oh, by the way, there's dunes in Saskatchewan, like lots of them. Um, there's 50 Sand Hills projects in Saskatchewan to be had. Problem is um, it, it's access and it's people and it's somebody willing to take that sort of risk. Um, so we've got all those sort of environments and then some. So environmental improvals are difficult in certain circumstances, uh, more so than America. Um, but there's lots of places. Uh, by the way, I still think the um, quarries, pits, um, 
particularly uh, massive gravel operations, which we have a lot, sand and gravel operations. Some of these sites are, are if sort of the Cypress and Pebble and, and that is the 10, these are like nines. Um, Cabo was just a reclaimed mine site. It was a nice ocean site. That wasn't, that's not the best site I've ever seen. I've seen much better than that. Wow. Um, Rod did a, a, a great job with that one, but it wasn't the most obvious site. It was a, the most obvious setting. Right. But it, um, and, but it, it's actually a reclaimed mine. A lot of, there's a lot of clay in the middle of the property and, and it took um, a lot of work to get that to function more than people realize. And, and he deserves a lot of credit for, for pulling that together. And it, it took a lot of work to turn it into a, a, a links from what was not a, a natural links. There were links sections to it, but it was not all of links. So there'll never be another Capilano or a BAMP or a, or a Highland links. Yeah, it's just a matter of is there going to be somebody clever enough to actually uh, pull that out of out of the property? And can Ian do that? Can Ian and Andrew do that? Um, Ian's still got to build. <laughs> Ian still got to build his first golf course. Um, I've, I've built stuff for other people, and and I've worked in collaboration. But that, uh, is that finding that's maybe happening sometime soon? No. Uh, that's got to get through a planning approvals. That's a, there's a, some tough zoning to that one. I've got the right group of people to do it. So, and it's the right setting circumstance and everything else. Um, Jim, we've had other than Cabot, we've had one other build, no, two other builds since 2004 or five, something like that. Canada's just not building, although uh, things are at least starting to move. We, we've actually been losing golf in a pretty regular clip, which was not a bad idea. Um, sort of a little bit of digestion and, and resetting. Um, but uh, biggest problem in Canada is just nobody's building and the environmental approvals. A uh, job I worked on for Doug Carrick took 20 years to get it approved. Wow. Yeah. And, and, Getting something approved in a couple of years is you would actually just you'd buy everybody at the bar a drink because you'd be so tickled that it actually happened that quick. That'd be you met, you that's mentioned expensive tab in Canada, by the way. I believe it. <laughs> you mentioned that you had worked with you built stuff for other people. Doug Carrick being one of them was he your 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 most important mentor, or were there others? Well, he was my mentor. I mean, I worked for him for 17 years. He uh, he certainly uh, taught me the the basics. I do like what Doug builds. I do think differently than Doug, but that doesn't matter. I, I do also appreciate what um, Doug um, builds and the ideas that he builds too. I think he's quite a quite a strong architect. Um, I would say that everything I I the whole foundation starts with him and then it, it just, it, it's a build out from there. And like everybody else, we, as we get introduced to different ideas and different people, we have a tendency to bring in those influences. I would say in my case, um, uh, the most interesting moment for me was I went out to the first Archipelosa and it's where you and I met for the first time. Cause we ended up talking about mathematics and um, pass and uh, yeah, pass a tempo. No, it was, sorry, it was um, the Santa Cruz golf course. Yeah, it was Paso Tiempo. 
Oh, was Pasatiempo? Yeah. Okay, yeah. I was I was thinking it was actually um, the course north of LA, um, Santa Barbara. Yeah. Um, oh, the Valley Club of Montecito. Yeah, we ended up talking about mathematics and bunker yeah. faces. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I went around um, uh, Pacific Dunes uh, the first day. Uh, funny enough, my one of my playing partners was Tommy Paul, um, and uh, and then I went out with. Uh, um, a couple of the guys from, from, uh, sorry, seniors, seniors, uh, memory here. Anyways, I went around with a bunch of guys who we went out and played 18 more holes, but I just remember looking at the architecture and I sat in the hotel room for a few minutes before we went back to have dinner together. And I said, what we're doing is not good enough. And it, it, it's not a knock on Doug's work. It's just, it, it told me that I wanted to do something different, that I wanted, I love the tie-ins. I think I've talked about it over and over. I think the tie-ins at Pacific Dunes are the best I've ever seen. And the fun part is understanding how far the, the efforts went to tie things in so that they look like they're just part of the original features. And the fact that there are, uh, I got a, a full walkthrough the, the one day from Tom about cuts and fills. And I couldn't have come up with some of them because it's Tom's nature. He makes you guess so that you're embarrassed. But um, uh, it was fun going through just talking about uh, the, the different spots where work done. But um, they, were, they were finished, but it still wasn't opened at the time. And then I got to watch some of that work again. I saw uh, Jim at Old Mac, and he was walk working on a green site when I went to see him and have a walk around with Kenny, uh, Ken Nice. Um, I, can't, I was trying to remember if I walked around with you or whether I just walked around with Kenny and we spent some time with you before and after. Before and after, but most of the time with Ken Nice, who is a, who is the smartest thing you ever did, spending time with Ken instead of me. <laughs> By the way, Derek, Ken Nice is, there are people in this business. Uh, I will give a shout out to a guy named John Kelly for drainage out of Kelly and me. Um, um, Steve and me, the same. Um uh, Ken Nice, there are people you meet who are just better than I will ever be. Um, they are experts at what they do. They are the people where it's we're not worthy because you just know that they know and the and they've got a beauty about them. They don't there there's no ego, and yet they are far smarter than I'll ever be about anything I ever study. Um, Ken is one of those people. I just was. He shared so much, but I was blown and I was blown away. I was just absolutely blown away. I didn't know what to say. Ken Nice is the superintendent of Bandon Dunes Resort, who helped uh, for people who don't know, helped build Bandon Dunes with Troy Russell, uh, the, the resort agronomist at the time, helped me build Pacific Dunes, helped Bill Coor build uh, trails, helped me build Old McDonald, and then finally. Finally, sheep ranch. Uh, the sheep ranch. And because of him, all of those golf courses are better by a long shot. So Ian is right. There are some people in the golf business that just have a where about them. They don't have to tell you how good they are. You know how good they are. <laughs> and the super cool thing about Ken is Ken is also quietly the, the builder of souls. Yeah. So um, one of the stories that um, – uh, one of the Bryans told me was that um, when they were when somebody would struggle at at the resort, 
rather than uh, ask them to leave, they would usually end up on his crew. Yep. And most, and he was the builder of souls. And most yep. of those people turned out to be excellent. Yep. And it just, sometimes people need um, a chance. And, and by the way, this happens on golf sites too. There are moments where somebody needs to give you shit, proper shit. And there are moments where somebody needs to give you a hug. And as, as a, um, as designers, um, one of the most important things is knowing when to um, say, you know, I, 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 this is not what I want. We all have our different ways of doing that. But there's also a time when you need to be the builder of souls where you say, okay, let's, I see where you're going, which quietly to yourself, this is not where I want to go. But let's play with this. And then just talk philosophically about what you're trying to do. So you're not, you can't, you can't tell everybody exactly what to do. You'll lose them. And the other thing is you'll lose their creativity, which you need to make you look like you actually know what you're doing. And then what you do is you let them run and let them grow and let them develop something. And sometimes they'll surprise you with something better than you were going to do. And that's how we get great work is whether it's, um, you know, their relationships, the, the design builders relationships are a lot more, um, that's more consistent. But in even in designer contractor, you need to sort of have the, 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 the greater good, the, the, the big buddy sort of process sometimes where you kind of let the, and, and it's amazing every once in a while that, um, you know, if you got to steer some more, you steer some more, but usually you'll get there. Um, but it's a person like Kenny that sort of has that influence on you that teaches you. Uh, he was my partner for one of uh, Tom's Renaissance Cups, so I was very lucky. You're um, lucky. Yeah. Um, but teaches you that um, uh, sometimes greatness comes from patience. And in architecture, patience sometimes is the greatest asset you can ever have is, um, is the walkaway moments is the, or just letting somebody else play with something you really quite can't get a handle on and just letting it grow, letting it organically happen. And I do believe in architecture, one of the things that's really important in architecture is we may plan or try to plan things, but it, it's the organic growth of something that actually finds usually the 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 unintended genius um, where you're going to get an awful lot of credit for very little um, direct input on it. Um, but it's also understanding to get out of the way of it. That uh, this, um, I talked to Lloyd Cole about the spark. Um, Lloyd Cole and I, actually, we're not talking music or golf architecture. We are very drunk in Sydney. <laughs> and we talked about we talked about the spark. Where does it come from? And I know part of it was um, getting, whether it's your ego or getting your um, organizational mind out of the way, it's allowing something to happen organically and and and. Um, I do think a lot of great architecture comes where um, I don't know is a great starting point for some of the great halls that it, where they something's happened where it was never planned um, and allowing things to just sort of grow 
Sorry, I'm talking too much. I should. No, that's why. This is... That's why you're here. No, <laughs> that's why. We, what's what we want? Yeah, we, it would be just me and Derek babbling, and that would be no fun. We'd rather listen to you. <laughs> well, Ian, where does that? What's the best way to get to that place where that spark can occur? Where is? What is it for Agreed. you? Agreed. That was my question. How do you get there? Um, I, I do. Well, for me, uh, I came from. Um, let's call architecturally. I came from a organizing planning and it, I, I will confess it strength or weakness. It is in my personality to try and organize what I want to do. But I think part of that is uh, even if you've got an idea that you want to see um, is know when to say um, just go with what's starting to happen. Like once you slide with something, once something starts to happen, just start going with it. Like don't, don't try to come back to the original idea. So maybe I've just said, I'm looking for a kicker slope here, or I'm looking for this to feed in. And, and uh, you know, nowadays you'll get a phone call before it, it, it worked a lot better than that when we didn't talk to each other all the time. Um, but you'll get a phone call and they'll say, I, I'm, I, I seem to be undoing what you want to do. The smart thing for me to do is to say, well, why don't you just keep going and see what happens? And then we can always, we can always just uh, move some things around. But usually when you get there, it's, it's the kernel of a better idea. Um, I, I do like to organize how I want the ball to move on the ground. So I've usually talked a lot about I would like the ball to find these areas and I'd like it to either be collected or bounced or repelled or whatever it is. But I, I do talk about the, now you're going to get the 11 dings. Sorry. Um, I, I do like to talk about where, what I want the ball to do in the, the areas leading up to the green side. And I may talk about how I want the green to fall in general terms. But after that, I try to stay out of the way and I try not to overly organize people that I work with. And, I, and nowadays I've worked with most of the people a lot. Um, uh, occasionally I'll say, why don't you just, you know, I'm looking for something here. And they'll say, well, what are you looking for? And I'll say, I'm just looking for something here. And then I'm, I will wander off. Leave the spark to them, <laughs> passing the spark. Yeah. <laughs> you guys yeah. go up and well, I I, I did, um, for one of the clubs, it was a, reno a renovation job, and I did, um, let's call it Hirono-style bunkers, really loose edge, but really, and for all I discovered from that was, it was great. I just told them to shape me essentially soup bowls, and, and then we worked all the shapes from that. And after five bunkers, I realized I was, there was no way I could do this, that I was going to repeat myself. So what I did was I went and got the superintendent, who's German, never ask a German to do something loose. Um, I asked him to paint it out and he was trying uh, too hard, got his assistant. The system was better and all I did was I edited it. You know who was the best person in the club? The person I used, I only used one person over and over again, the chef. The <laughs> chef would come out and I'd tell him. So I told him, I told everybody, if you want to paint pictures, if you want to paint your kids, if you want to draw faces, I actually don't care what you paint. I just need a starting point that's not me. And he would paint birds and do all sorts of stuff. And he was so random and wild. 
that it was great that I would sit there and I'd scratch my head for a while going, okay, how can I turn this into an actual bunker? His bunkers were the best because all I was trying to do is edit it back in to fit the style. But it was so random. It was so out of control for me. Um, sometimes you, um, I do have another really funny story. Um, I'm going to go sideways. Uh, I had never run a bulldozer before, and they gave me a bulldozer to push the piles out at the Olympic course in Rio, 15th hole. And so I had no experience. So the first thing I didn't know to do was uh, to drive slowly. So I tried to operate in, so you'll have a good laugh at this, Jim. I tried to run it in third year, fall out, and, and push everything flat. So do I need to say any more to you? Oh, you know exactly how it's going. Oh, yeah. So yeah, I kept... Yeah. And, and so I kept, every time I started to get really bad and do the whoop-de-doos, I'm right. trying to push it flat. I would turn and go a different direction. So I did this all day, made an epic mess. So Gil and Neil and, and Ben show up. And Gil has had a very, very hard couple of days. And Gil's standing on top of, because the 15 greens, one of the ones that set in the dunes, a great natural grain site. And he's up there and I can see him laughing. And then I can see him double over laughing. And because it's brutal, like it's the, it's hilariously bad. The interesting thing is Neil goes out there and walks it with Ben. Neil comes back and we all go to see Gil and Gil's busting my balls as he should. And uh, cause it was really funny. And the other thing was I even parked the dozer with the blade up and like, I mean, I did everything you could possibly think of wrong. And uh, so we get there and Neil goes, it's fantastic. <laughs> and, and Gil goes, horseshit, it's awful. It's like, that's pathetic. And he said, it's funny, but it's pathetic. And, and, and Neil goes, no, he goes, I think I need about three hours and we've got a fairway. And Gil goes, what? And he goes, every roll is in a different direction and a different size. And it's so random. It's so crazy that it actually kind of works for what we talked about trying to do with this, Bill Fairway. Yeah. And so I don't know how much they actually did, but that, but it, it goes to show you sometimes they always say, if you want something really random and interesting, get the village idiot. I'm the village idiot and get the village idiot to push it flat. Well, that was the Alistair McKenzie quote, Derek, that you get the village idiot. McDonald said the same thing, yep. uh, roll stones out and, and let it be random. But I want to ask this to Ian and, and, I, he talks in singular that he would look at projects and he would work with uh, chefs and, and, and maintenance people. He talks singular. At one time, you were going to be a partner with Mike Weir. How did that get formed? And, and was it just a sign of the times of, of economics that it never uh, came to fruition? So... Um... Mike had a project in um, at Predator Ridge that was going to be going to add the third eighteen uh, new property, um, great site by the way, and so they decided to have a design competition to hire a designer, and we did uh, routing plan and whatever we wanted to do to to sell the golf course to Mike and just to give the opportunity. Um, I won the competition. And so I had a routing plan, I had images and everything else. And then Mike and I took that, revised that, and we thought we were going to build that. And that was in 2008. So um, 2008 financial crisis happened in 2009, 
fallout happened. And essentially that project went away because it, it involved um, uh, the development group and uh, an adjacent uh, landholder as a partnership. And so the terms, they wanted to renegotiate the terms and it all fell apart from there. So it never happened. We actually did build Laval. So Laval is a, a rebuild of uh, an existing golf course done by two different architects, two times. And Mike and I got a chance to work together and we redesigned that. You could call that a new golf course. You could call that, a, it's on an existing golf course and it does use 12 of the original corridors. I've never known what to call it. Um, I've kind of called it a renovation, just a really invasive renovation. Anyways, um, so we got a chance to actually work together and, and do that. The one thing that Mike never um, lost focus on was he wanted to be a player. And so even when his game was um, not going well, he focused on playing. In fact, I'd say he doubled down. And uh, he's playing really well in the senior tour. His focus has always been on play. So um, essentially, it was left to me to look for new projects. It was not an easy time. And obviously, our market's going to be Canada. We did look at a few things. We got really close in a couple of things, but nothing ever happened. I would say it's not done, but it's not active. Um, he's not chasing work, and he's probably got a, a, a greater ability to go and, and find work. So that's unfortunate for us. Um, we remain friendly. We talk every once in a while. Um, and we did have fun at Laval. I can honestly say he was easy to work with. We both shared the same design ideas. So that made it a breeze. Um, and it was fun. And, and, you know, I had some really fun moments with him because, um, um, my, my favorite moment, actually, we were at a bar. We went out to get dinner. I, he, he would stay either with me or not with me, depending on the circumstance, because I had an apartment. I had a, an apartment in the seniors complex, <laughs> French-speaking seniors <laughs> complex. Um, so it was arranged by the club, which was very kind of them, because I was there. Um, it was a really big job for me. So I spent uh, two months fall and two months spring there. And um, But we went out to a bar one night. He wanted to... to to buy dinner out at a bar and, and he got approached when the guy said, Hey, you look just like Mark Queer. And he goes, I can't believe it. I get this from everybody. I don't look anything like him. <laughs> and, and, but, but he, what was nice is he said, uh, he said, you uh, golf fan. And they talked about golf for a little while and they talked about sports as well. Cause we were watching the hockey game at the time and uh, finished up and the bartender comes over and he goes, nice one, Mike, nice one. <laughs> and and clearly recognized him and it was really quite funny but it was the way he handled but he didn't hustle him off or anything else he actually all he did was it stopped the sort of the spread of everything <laughs> but mike mike is one of the nicest people on the planet i really enjoyed his company i enjoyed working with him um we both have sort of a love affair for the same golf courses uh, we walked riviera together um we walked augusta together with nobody there wow um, I mean, that sort of stuff's really cool. And just to listen to Riviera was the most fun because it was how he had to unlock Riviera because he told the story of how badly he played and how he had to change his um, way of playing the golf course and how all of a sudden it turned into two wins for him. But he talked, he talked as much about all the things he did wrong. And that's where it was really fun, where Augusta was more about he, he had a clear 
pattern of if I get here, I, I play for this, I do for this, I'm, I'm looking to use this, I want this backstop. I, uh, and he talked about, I can't miss here. And he would explain why you couldn't miss here. And he would show me the shot and, and why it was difficult. It was more about just getting a, a complete um, path through Augusta on how Mike plays it. Riviera was as much about um, this is all the this is the mess that I made and this is how I made the mess. <laughs> and it was the, it, the the scrambled eggs was far more fun because it, it it pointed out even some little things where I went, wow, you know, I'd been around it twice, but I didn't notice that at all. I didn't notice that how bad that that was, and I never thought about that as a bad spot to be. I was looking at all of this because to me this was bad. So. That was, I, I can't thank him enough for that. I've funny enough done the same at Pebble Beach. He had me down at Pebble Beach with him and staying in the house with him. And and by the way, that's as close as we got to another project was Quail Hollow, Quail Ridge, whatever yep. is the resort. I know of it. Yep. Just we, we, got, we got super close to doing the rebuild there. And uh, that was a bummer. That, that would have been a good one for us because it actually really worked well for him. Same with the project in Utah in, in uh in Salt Lake was, I thought we got there twice, but yeah, you know what? It golf's like that. I, I, I used to get all, I would say, Derek, the best way to put it is for the first 10 years, you're so damn excited that you're in it, that everything's great. Um, d- dig a ditch, expand a forward T 50 square feet. Everything's great. Everything's spectacularly wonderful. And, and then you get a little bit more ambitious and, um, and you, the things you don't get to do sometimes sort of paint your existence a little bit. Um, and then there becomes a point sort of later on where yes, there occasionally you wish I did that or you wish I got the opportunity to do that. But you also sometimes stand somewhere and go, I can't believe I get to do this and I can't believe I'm standing here. And, and the moment you have that, I still get that. So I, I, I can be grumpy sometimes, but every once in a while I'll stand somewhere, I'll look around and go, why do they trust me? Why, why me? Um, and it's a really super cool moment to have because it's, it sounds like it's a hollowing out moment where you become insecure. By the way, I think most really good architects are fairly insecure when you actually dig down deep inside. Really? Um, <laughs> really? Yeah, I do. <laughs> Tremendously insecure. Very insecure. And the and the belief that you could have done better is what drives you to be better. That's right. I, I, I'm a big believer in that. That's right. But but while that sounds like a hollowing out moment, it's actually one where you remember I said your heart grows two sizes. It's like enjoying David's work at uh, Band and Dunes, where you just feel special. And it and you feel and and that's probably the greatest reward outside of people. Um, there's nothing cooler than going over something with somebody or going to see if going to see Jim and Jim explaining why he's working something, trying so hard to get a particular contour. Was it 18 green or was it 17 green? I can, I can't remember what one you were working on, but I, you were trying to draw a contour out probably meaningless to you in the long run, but it meant a lot to me watching. Thank you. It was 17. Yeah. And, and, and knowing what he's fighting for. I watched Gil do it at Gavia. One of my great joys was Gil. (laughs) I'm going to overstate this and back up from it. I was going to say Gil and I built a green at Gavia. Not true. Gil built a green at Gavia. I went up there to help him finish. 
Um, and, and finish, by the way, is just sort of tying in the grades around the edges and, and shooting some grades just to make sure of a few things. Uh, but he was watching him fight for one particular contour. And I got to see him do that stream song black as well, because I, I spent a couple of weeks out there and you know, watching fighting for a contour on the second green of stream song black. Watching these. What do you mean by when you say fighting for a contour? They have something very, very specific on how it's going to tie in and how it's going to blend. And the fighting is just them trying to get it the way they see it or the way they envision it. um, The best way I can put it is um, it's taking butter knife bits out because they know they're so close with a large with a sand pro and taking those really micro pushes and pushing and pushing and pushing and looking and pushing and moving. And, and if you look at it from 50 feet away, you might think they're actually not doing anything, but if you can watch and take the time to watch, you'll notice how all of a sudden everything magically goes together. And it's a really fun experience to watch somebody absolutely in their element, whether it's somebody who's got a mini X and, and, is building something and all of a sudden a magical edge comes together or somebody on a sand pro who's right trying to trying to do that jim that that's, already, that's your experience yeah. watching bill at, at sand hills on 14 you got it i was just gonna tell ian uh, I, we had uh bill core on and i sat on a hill with ben crenshaw who i really didn't know at the time watching Bill Coor trying to get the contours right on the 14th at Sandhills and Ben Cranshaw leaning, leaning over to me and saying, he's going to be here a while, Jim, let's go for a walk. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's funny. You can, you can kind of, you can kind of tell that, Um, you know, and one of the fun things is everybody's personality is different. Um, Whether it's a stone face or whether, um, Gil's a good example. Gil gets, um, uh, it's almost hardness in his expression. That's intimidating when he's going from working to, he, to that, he he becomes super, super focused. Everybody knows Gil is a really likable, really well-spoken guy. But when he gets into that mode, and 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 I'm sure, like, I've only seen Jim just uh, the best way I can call it is stone face. Uh, it, it's a concentration level. But I think when the people who do this the best, and by the way, I'm not including myself among them. There's there's sort of a handful of people who are who are just better than others. When the people who do it best, there's a sternness and a stubbornness and a mild frustration that they're feeling that emanates out from them very clearly of, but it's also what gets them to that level. Um, it, it's, it, it, it's almost a little F you inside of them. That's coming out that they, they just are, I'm going to get this and you can see it. And then all of a sudden when they get it, you can see the smile spread immediately. You can see the happiness, the, uh, or even just the upturn in the lips, you can just see the moment where that's it. I know that's it. And they may play with it a little bit just because they're, they're trying to do, but they finally solved the riddle. Cause these are all riddles. Mm-hmm. They're all little riddles and big riddles and, and, and building a golf course is 
is solving one riddle after another. That's why playing it is a series of riddles. And hopefully, see, hopefully. Derek, Ian describes this passion that all of us have about doing the right thing, uh, spending the right amount of time. It's passion, Derek, and, and I can't express it. I don't know how to tell you about it. Ian did his best to do it. Ian has it in the same things that he do he does when he's working on his golf courses. It's that passion to get it right, and, and you're not going to leave the night uh, until it is right. And if you don't get it right, you lay awake at night until the next day when you go at it again. And it's those little things, passion, that Ian talks about that is so well described. See, in Canada, we have medical marijuana, so you don't think about it at night. <laughs> I'm just I think most of us can get our hands on that here too. <laughs> well, just to, just to kind of bring this conversation full circle, you know, we started off talking about um, we mentioned winged foot, and you said something that uh, I thought was interesting, Ian, about wanting uh, you know part of golf is about being challenged. You know, that Jim and I were talking previously about what stimulated us. Him, he as a designer, me as someone who goes and plays golf courses and writes about them, and one of them is that sense of. That sense of awe, the sense of wonder, that emotion, that sensation, that's a, that's a very real part of it. Uh, you mentioned that it was based on having options and having the ability to play holes a different way. But then you said, you know, you admired Wingfoot, and there was 10% of the maybe should of the challenge should be sort of difficulty or overcoming. That's a very small percentage of the, the total golf experience. And I think I think you would agree that for a long period of time, decades the difficulty factor was 90% of what people were going for, maybe as high as 90%. And the fun factor was maybe not considered much, if at all. And I, I wonder, like, just from your own observations traveling around, I know that's, I, I think we, the three of us agree that more of a 90-10 swing for fun and exploration and options is, is uh, maybe uh, more enjoyable for us maybe that's where golf is but in your travels are you seeing that the most players developers owners club pros the people you you interact with do you feel like they have come around to the fun aspect of it the the option aspect or is there still a big element in the golf industry that equates championship level difficult courses with greatness so i would say the players have really come around remarkably so um that they they may not want as much fun as the, I think the architects um, have pushed for, um, but they've definitely come around to that. I think the developers are a little bit behind. I think a lot of them are still um, kind of influenced by old models. So I think they're a little slower to come, but you know, I, I always thought minimalism could have had a really great mantra of invert the pyramid essentially let's go from 10 to 90 to 90 to 10 mm -hmm. on, on fun and difficulty. Cause that's essentially what we're kind of watching take place. Um, I kind of believe that a golf course is the same way. It, it needs a really good design has a moment that where you have to be your very best, even on a fun, generally receptive and enjoyable golf course, you need to have, that moment of test or pressure. It can be a single shot. It can be a couple of shots. It can be the entire hole. It, it, it doesn't really matter. But I think you need those ups and downs to create a, um, 
sort of a roller coaster of emotions. Um, if it's all easy, I don't think you respond. If it's all hard, I don't think you you may respond. But I again, I think you also may just at, at a certain point uh, mentally bail out yeah. on that. Like enough's enough. And so the middle ground's actually where the best golf sits. It's got like. Oakmont's a little, Oakmont was a bit of a revelation for me. I thought it was going to be a, a kick you in the ass golf course. And it's not, it's actually, it's got a series of short fours. Um, it has gettable moments and it has certainly some of the hardest moments I've ever seen, but I think it's a little bit more balanced than it's given credit for. It's not as penal as people um, place it. I think that's a generalization that's actually inaccurate for, for that golf course. Wingfoot as well. You can run the ball into a lot of green sites. You know, if you hit it in the rough, you can always play in front of the greens. And then uh, that was my dad's great gift, just because he could flat out make any putt. Uh, he was never afraid to pitch a ball out to 100 yards. And knock. You can actually get around wing foot. Um, there are worse golf courses than that. I think stuff with forced carries and and wetlands and long grasses can be far worse than that. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I've lost my train of thought. I, I got to be honest. Well, it's it's just getting back to the idea of if the uh, development and uh, if the average golfer has embraced fun the way architecture world has. And I can spin it back to you too, Jim. Like w- w- the clubs that you work with, and you t- as well, Ian. Is it hard to go in and and uh, sell a, a program to a membership that you know that you're going to try to make the golf course more? Uh, wider fun you know recapture green space it's it's seeming it's might seem uh that it's you're going to lose some element of difficulty or challenge even though that's probably not the case but that's what it sounds like to them are they still caught up in the old mindset of uh challenge and difficulty and championship quality is equals a better golf course how how much convincing do you have to do i'll start ian if you don't mind because this drives me nuts, Derek. There is always a, the the small faction of people in every club that I step on site with to restore. I, I restore golf courses, uh, the, the classic golden age designs. There's always a small group of people who say, you're going to make the golf course easier. And I'm saying, oh, you want the game to be harder? And there's always that small portion of people that's that live by the old rules that if it's a if it's the most difficult golf course in Denver, Colorado, Chicago, Illinois, Toronto, Canada, it must be the best golf course. There's a small fraction that believe that. It will never go away. That 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 mindset that hard equals good. And so I try to, to the best of my ability, make the game for all levels of players to enjoy and to get around and still test that small uh, a fraction of people at the club. It, it's not going away, Derek. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a group of people that believe, and Ian may agree or disagree, there's a small group of people in every club that says, if you make it too easy, nobody's going to like it. It's not going to be revered. Uh, it's not going to be the same golf course that we love. And I just shake my head thinking, why do you want to make golf harder? I found post, I agree, there's always that small segment, but I found post 208, um, the idea of making um, it more enjoyable has definitely been embraced. 
uh, I would say in general, most clubs are actually on board right off the bat. So it, it's not a difficult thing to sell anymore. And while Jim's dead right, there's always going to be those players that don't want to see that. Funny enough, they're usually not the scratch player at the club anymore. They're, they're usually a 14 or 15 handicap who's just got a mindset. Um, I'm finding nowadays the idea of turning something into more fun um, or making it more fun by making um, accommodations is definitely in the cards. It's an easy sell. And it's like tree removal. Tree removal was impossible when I started in the business. It's now an easy sell. Okay. I, I do think the game and the players in the game and and the people who represent their clubs, because I'm mainly in private golf, um, they've come a long way since 20, 25 years. I, it's actually pretty remarkable. Well, good. We're making progress. <laughs> if you think that's <laughs> if you think that's progress. The reactionaries, though, won't, won't like to hear that. Yeah, but then again, got to remember, I don't work with the wingfoots of the world. Um, minor, generally, mostly historical golf clubs. Um, I do not, uh, I may work with the, um, the old money club in a town, but I don't work with the super high profile club in a town, usually. That's, that's more... We all have sort of our our places in the world. I'm I'm more. If you've hired me, you know, I'm kind of a nichey guy. So you've already kind of gone out there a little bit off the edge. So I wonder if maybe that's, uh, maybe if uh, that's sort of the nature of the where my starting point may be a lot easier than Jim's. That um, maybe I'm working with um, a lot of lower key places. I have a lot of places where. People don't. People have never played them, um, and I'm just lucky to be there. But they also don't want people to. They really don't want people to come. Sure, they're, one, they're just their own. Their own little worlds. One place Pepper that Pike, that uh, Pepper Pike would be. One. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was just gonna say one one place that people will be able to get to see some of your work is this summer when the Canadian Open actually does get to be played at at St George's. And uh, we missed it last summer. It was post or canceled, I guess. So um, th- there'll uh, be a spotlight on a, a great old Stanley Thompson golf course and some of your involvement working with that club as well for all of us to see. Well, first up, I'm going to say um, it is scheduled, but um, we're all a little nervous um, because um, the protocols may be an issue for actually the um, getting the players to play um, because we here don't think that the um, quarantine rules are going to have changed at that point, unless they're going to grant an exemption to the players. Um, so, well, that's, that's not uh, good news. I was trying to end this on a positive sorry. note. And I, 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 um, <laughs> so they put it this way. If they don't play it this year, they'll play it next year anyway. Um Ian McQueen is the superintendent and um, he's got everything absolutely dialed in. We actually um, updated the bunkers to Billy Bunker um, because we do get major storms and that would help them deal with that. And the other thing is um, the original restoration was done back in 2000 of the bunkers. It allowed us to touch a few things up, but generally just check things. So, I mean, we hope that what's there is going to stay there from here on in. It's been restored it's a remarkable piece of work 
Um, you're going to get the one bell this time. Uh, it's a remarkable piece of work. So it's a really good example to see Thompson's work. Um, the bunkering is a great example of his. It's not as elaborate as Banff, but it certainly is bold. It's probably more three-dimensional, more deep than any other project he did. It's probably the most aggressive on that end. Um, there's lots of great holes there. So I think people really appreciate what he did. And uh, the routing is particularly clever. He got to choose that land and it's the way it uses the ravine system. There's a series of ravines, but it uses them. Um, you know, it runs along them, it runs through them, it runs over them. It's just the, the variety and the way he's kind of tackled the ravine system. And I'm just really, um, you could say I'm, I'm um, repeating something that Tom uh, Doak said a while back that I, I thought was really well put in his confidential guide about the way the routing was, was done. I, I completely agree with him, so I don't mind giving him credit for that. And I just think uh, just the quality of golf holes throughout is really impressive and, and something that uh, everyone will really enjoy it. And it's a not that pretty is a, a measure of a golf course, but it's about as pretty a golf course as you're going to find. The architecture is is stellar and the setting is wonderful and the tree work has got it down to a spot where you can even admire the the remaining big oaks that are left mm -hmm. and and they they stand out because they're now singular rather than cluster well it immediately becomes i think one of the most interesting golf courses on the pga tour which may not be the highest bar but it's um i think when we do get to see it eventually whether it's this this year or next year i think it's going to be a real treat for people to be able to see some of Stanley Thompson's work. I, I know when they um, had the last open there, um, I'm trying to remember the fellow's name. As I said, I get these senior moments for names, um, but he shot 60 in the third round. And um, I know everybody became super nervous about that. Um, and I, I remember telling the club, just look at the, all the comments that were made by the players and the comments are overwhelming about how much they enjoyed the golf course, how much the, it was a treat to play a golf course like that of that style and how much they admired the architecture. And, and, and it was one of the few times I've ever seen where the comments were about the architecture first. Um, and, and I think that's one of the joys is it, to me, it, it's, I mean, Riviera is a special place because we have a history with it too, but I mean, it, it's nice to have a Riviera level golf course as part of the, um, the rotation of courses we get to see players play and it's it gives you a secondary reason for watching and, and it certainly is it his best golf course um some people think so um i kind of go back and forth with that in highlands i'd like them for different reasons but it's an awfully good example of his work so i mean if somebody wanted to learn about stanley thompson i can't think of a better golf course and it's probably one of the only ones that could actually host something. So it's a fine opportunity to see it. And, it, and, it, and, it's, and it's in, you know, as I like to say, all mistakes are my own. Anything that's wrong with it's my fault at this point. It's not the club. Uh, it's not the superintendent. Um, everybody's done exactly what they need to do to make it perfect. So if there's sort of some flaws with the architecture, it's on me, all not right. on anybody else. You all heard it. <laughs> I don't think you'll get too many complaints. Ian, that was great. Thanks for joining us today. Really appreciate you coming back onto the podcast and always good to catch up. Let's not, let's not wait two and a half years or whatever until we do it again. 
It was a pleasure, guys. I really appreciate being part of this experience. It's kind of fun having uh, sort of this uh, roundtable or salon. Um, and I've, I've been enjoying them. The, by the way, the one with Forrest Richardson was spectacular. Um, I really enjoyed that. And I really enjoyed Forrest in particular. I, I thought he was so well-spoken. Uh, it, it's a nice format to to allow you, the three of you to interact. I really enjoyed that. It was a really great podcast. Thank you. And thank you for today, Ian, by the way. Thank you. Uh, my pleasure. I appreciate being part of uh, your little show. Derek, I was, I really enjoyed that conversation with Ian. I, I'm sorry that I didn't get to ask this question, but it, it, we got off on so many different topics, especially about Stanley Thompson and his role in, in Canadian golf course architecture. But Here's one thing that I forgot, uh, I forgot to ask. I didn't get a chance to ask. And in Ian's biography, he talks about becoming frustrated that historically important golf courses in Canada were being modernized. And he thought that the idea that you should promote them and uh, preserve them was one of the most important things that he could do. And he took on that role of preservation. And he did that at St. George's Golf and Country Club. He did that at Highland Links, and he would like to do that at, at uh, possibly Banff or, or Capilano, the golf courses we talked about. And I thought, and unfortunately, I wish I could get his strong opinion on this, but I thought that there's a need for preservation, that you would agree with me that technology has overridden some of the architectural features of today's golf courses of the golden age golf courses, but Ian took it upon himself to, that, to said, I have to preserve these. I want to be one of those people that preserve them. And I feel strongly about that too. I wish we could have gone back and forth with that a little bit, but Derek, you have to admit we can't modernize everything. We have to be able to look back at history and say that was worth preserving. Oh, that's how they used to play, play the game. Oh, those style of architecture was important. I don't think we can modernize everything for the sake of the ball in the club. Yeah, I would before you know we go too far down this path. I would I would say well let's just for the listeners and for ourselves qualify what we're talking about when we say modernize these golf courses. Um, there are certain things that are done to golf courses that are do actually modernize them. If you're going to replace the irrigation system, that's something uh, an old historic golf course would need to have done at some point. If you're going to maybe add tees for certain situations, we've talked about that in this podcast. Sometimes that's not necessarily uh, a negative. What do you think when you, when you were listening to Ian talk about that and, and your gears were turning in your mind, what did you, what were you thinking that he meant by modernizing golf courses in the context of those historic courses he was referring to? Well, he was glowing. He was very glowing about, St. George's and, and and the work that he did to bring that back, the style of bunkering, the placement of the bunkering. And even though it may not be relevant to a 320 yard tee shot, he still felt it relevant to the style and architecture around the greens, the type of greens, the type of bunkering, and that, that, that Stanley Thompson should be, should be glorified and not muted in any way, not stifled in any way. And I just think that when we talk about modernizing golf courses, 
it's very simple to take a Rainer golf course. It's very simple to take a Ross golf course and to start putting frilly bunkers all over the place. You know what I mean by frilly bunkers, the ones with the, the raggedy edges, because that seems to be in vogue right now. Mm-hmm. And I don't want every golf course to have frilly bunkers. I guess that's my point. I don't want every golf course to have flashed up sand uh, uh, so that you can see it. I don't want every golf course to have greens there that are canted from, from, uh, from back to front. They have to have their own character. And if we wipe away everything that is golden age and we, for the sake of modernization, that's where I think I would have agreed with Ian and saying it was time to put a stop to the modernization. It was time to preserve some of them. All of them, I can't say for sure. But for some of them, you have to preserve them. We can't have the same golf course around every corner, down every street, around every gate and fence. We all we know for certain that in the United States and Canada, in the post-war period going up through, you know, maybe the 1980s, as we've spoken about endlessly on this, in our chats on this podcast, so much destructive work was done to older historic golf courses in the name of modernization, in the name of improvement. I'm sure the committees and the members of those clubs thought they were making their golf course better. That's always the instinct. It's, nobody wants to make their golf course not as good, so they That's believed fair. it. But there were fundamental changes that altered the original architecture. So I think in those cases, if so, for instance, if you take a, a, a Stanley Thompson golf hole and he's arranged the bunkers in a certain way for his own reasons of strategy and playability, he's <laughs> he should be deferred to on that. But in 1965, Jeffrey Cornish came around and removed this bunker, shifted this one, put two bunkers in front of the green to block off the you know the ground game approach. That's probably a travesty in the eyes of history. When when you're talking, and I agree with that. I, I mean, I, I, there are certain golf courses that 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 was a destructive tendency. What you're talking about, when I just heard you talking about bunker and Philly, it almost sounds like you think that there's a lot of modernization going on right now. Is that, that is a fair a, statement? That is a fair statement. I think that when Pete Dye introduced railroad ties, or what we called bulkheading, everybody started doing bulkheading. You couldn't go to a golf course that didn't have an island green, that didn't have bulkheading around a water's edge, that didn't have that style and look. And I just don't want us to go through that era again of everybody has to get bulkheading. Everybody has to look like Pete Dye. I think there should be Pete Dye, and I think there should be a celebration of whoever else was in that 60s, 70s, and 80s era. I don't think that you should tear out the bulkheading at the golf club in New Albany, Ohio, that Pete did. I think that it should have its own character. I don't think that you should just eradicate everything that Robert Trent Jones Sr. did. I don't think that you should eradicate everything that Dick Wilson did because it doesn't look cool right now. Mm -hmm. They had their place in history, and I think that we should celebrate that 
for its time and place so we can look back and then also look forward. I understand long Dick Wilson tees or long uh, Robert Trent Jones Sr. tees. They called them air, aircraft carrier runways. Did every golf course need to have those? No. They had certain characters that they liked. Why not preserve those? Why start to get rid of all of that look for the sake of being what is in vogue right now? Yeah. That's all I'm saying. I'm glad you said that. I think that it's about preservation, to go back to your word that you used just a few minutes ago. And it that's not reserved for a certain period in time. It's not reserved for golf courses of the 1920s. It should be respected at any vintage. You know, and, and just to bring us back to Ian, um, if I'm not mistaken, I think Ian's uh, working and has worked at two RTJ golf courses, Midvale and Cragburn. And I think he's basically trying to, you know, he has to work with the clubs themselves and the courses and the ownerships, but uh, preserving the Trent Jones character of those golf courses. He's not going in, to my knowledge, uh, and doing an Ian Andrew take of Stanley Thompson going back in time and getting his revenge on Trent Jones for <laughs> stealing all his clients. Um, but I think that Ian might tell us that, you know, the, the more he's familiarized himself with, with Robert Trent Jones's work, the more he, you know, respects it and sees the value in, in honoring that. Um, so, so that I think is, is, um, to, you know, I, I'll, I'll rewind here. In our very first podcast we did together, not not the salon, but we when uh, you and I were just talking to each other, you mentioned, um, I don't want to say it was a concern, but an idea that it was social media having an influence on golf course design, and were were um, were, were people trying to project strongly. I'm I'm not quite capturing the essence of our conversation. Everybody should go back and listen to Jim's podcast uh, on feed the ball. But when you're talking about you don't want all the bunkers to look the same and not every golf course should have frilly bunkers. You know, sometimes that's historically accurate and other times it's an interpretation um, enacted by a specific person or committee or something. But I wonder if that sort of touches on your original point about injecting and because that is in a form that's a form of modernization it's not a technical modernization but it's a, it's applying a modern aesthetic or a modern standard or a modern idea potentially out of context onto a golf course and i wonder if that ties in in any way to kind of your overall thoughts about how visual mediums and and design can be influenced by other other things that's happening around i don't know if i that didn't come off well at all i'm sorry but no, it did um, it, we we are we are motivated sometimes we are captivated sometimes we are challenged sometimes but what's by what's going on around us and when i'll, I'll, I'll never forget the statement when pete Dye went across the street to to see what Jones Sr. was doing at Hilton Head, and Jones was doing everything gargantuan, big, big, big. Pete said, I'm going to small, small, small. That's the reaction to what's surrounding us uh, uh, in, in, in that time and place. That's all I'm saying right now. I think that's what you're saying. We shouldn't just become one-dimensional because in this time and space right now, we're building 
kind of that natural looking bunker. Or maybe it's because of the site. I don't know. I don't know. But I'm saying Pete Dye said, oh, Jones is building big. I'm going to build small. Rayner was doing uh, grass face bunkers with, along with Ross and McKenzie and, and, and Flynn and, and, and Stanley Thompson said, you know what? I want to see those bunkers. I'm going to flash them. So I just don't want everything to be all flashed or all grass or all frilly or all visible or invisible. A variety. And Ian Andrews says the reason he wanted to preserve is that he didn't think that everything should be modernized. And your term modernized meaning maybe what's in vogue today. Maybe we should still preserve what was happening back then. He did a wonderful job at St. George's. He could hardly wait till the Canadian Open is played there this year so that we could all see it. I'm looking forward to it. Maybe we need more Stanley Thompson style golf courses. But then again, that would be against my credo. <laughs> Don't do everything Stanley Thompson. Well, Stanley Thompson golf courses should be Stanley Thompson golf courses. Agreed. I guess that's my point. <laughs> yes. They should be Stanley Thompson golf courses. Yeah. Don't you think, though, that we're at a point in time where the modernization in the destructive way is largely has largely ceased to exist? There's such a sensitivity for history and originalism in architecture. We know so much about these designers, you know, who were building the courses prior to the Great Depression. So many of our classic golf courses have been restored to some version or an attempt to restore them to their true original form. It's very rare now to see a property with a really great old course just get blasted away yeah. into something completely different. Um, it yeah. happens, but uh, that's that's more and more rare. Unless I'm not seeing the forest through the trees, it seems to me that almost everybody is on board the the historic restoration train. Almost everybody. <laughs> almost everybody. Our buddy David Kidd would say, what are you guys doing here, man? <laughs> <laughs> Remember? <laughs> He said, "Why right. do that? I could do better." Well, he hasn't. He hasn't taken on too many of those jobs, as, as far as I know. That's true. Um, That's true. So he's still innocent, as far as actually <laughs> wallpapering over the, the paneling. He's not guilty yet. Not yet. <laughs> he's not guilty yet. And you know, that's the thing that I I wish we could go back. Ten years ago, Derek, and I wish we could have talked to Mike Strands because I think I think he was on such a trajectory of differentness of uh, excuse the word differentness. Uh, he was he was maybe headed way way off a beaten path that we could have enjoyed more and more as golf course architects, designers, builders, whatever you want to call us. I think we could have enjoyed where Strands was going. I suggested to you a long time ago that you should go play Bulls Bay. And I'm telling you what, that Bulls Bay in South Carolina was a Strantz effort that I thought, God, I wish he could have seen, done more of these, that style of architecture. It's, it's a, I enjoyed it for what it's worth. I enjoyed it completely. Well, interesting you say that. I was just there and I was just around Bulls Bay last week and agree with you. I think that that golf course 
is remarkable and it's it's a it's a property and a, and a style of it's an achievement that was pretty unique in golf in that uh someone else could have attempted to do the same thing which is basically pile up a big castle of sand in the middle of the property and then yep. run holes up and down it and yep. also create some really interesting low level holes down by the river and it's, and it's all done in a uniquely mike strands way it's it's something yep. that is an, a colossal achievement and it's a beautiful golf course and you know the thing the beautiful thing about mike strands is and i wish he were still alive like you and i'd be so curious to know where he'd he'd go he'd be right now um but you know, in biology, they, they find like one of the most useful things to study, to learn about are um, identical twins, because you can separate ident- identical twins, not, to, not that they actually do this consciously, but the, you can look at identical twins that have been separated at birth and chart how they grow and learn so much about the relationship and biology, uh, because they're like perfect case studies. And Mike Strands is like a perfect architectural case study because he designed... Uh, you know, a number of pretty good courses helping Tom Fazio. But then on his own, he did, what, eight golf courses? Something like, you know, eight original golf courses, if that's it. And you can look at them and and kind of watch him grow and progress through each one. And you start off with, um, you know, his his, um, Myrtle Beach golf courses. You get into this middle period with Bulls Bay and Tobacco Road, which is sort of like the greatest expression of his, 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 like, these are his masterpieces. And then... He has Monterey Peninsula Country Club, and it's just something like that's. Com- I mean, it's the same, and yet it's it's a different mode. He had a different it gear, is. and you can just study this beautiful little collection of golf holes that he's that he created, and just learn so much about architecture, architecture in the in the late twentieth century, uh, the creative process, the mind, what we like about golf, what stimulates us, pure artistry from a way that he layers features intersecting bunkers the the sight lines the height that he gives things it's just um it's an endlessly fascinating thing to study and bulls bay is his one is probably his his most triumphant loud beethoven symphony the clashing cymbals the big drums the orchestral movements this is like when he is showing everything that he can do and then you get to monterey peninsula and it's it's more like an, an elegy a beautiful complicated sublime understated understated Understated. yes yes the piano a piano prelude yes and so for me on behalf of ian andrew i think we should preserve mike strance golf courses i think that we should embrace bulls bay as a work of art as easily as we should embrace mpcc mm-hmm. as a work of art and so in this moment in time this is what his expression was and that when ian says we should preserve some of these i think we should preserve some of mike Strance's stuff so that we don't go down that road of modernization for the sake of modernization well i'm going to deputize myself and put you and ian <laughs> andrew in charge of the protectorate of the Strandsian architecture don't let anybody at him <laughs> well, it's not on. <laughs> if they call me, I'll just say, don't touch it. But you're right. Irrigation has to be modernized. Bunker sand sometimes has to be replaced. Drainage has to be put back in. Greens change. They evolve. We've talked about that. So, yes, you're right. 
you do have to do things to help uh, calm down uh, the, the evolution of a golf course. I get that. But the beauty of Bulls Bay, the beauty of, of MPCC and, and Tobacco Road and all those other strands courses, they, in the modern time, should be preserved as much as Ian Andrew felt that Stanley Thompson and the works in Canada should not be lost. And his goal was to, to do that, to preserve those. And maybe we should pick 10 or 15 or, or so of Bill Coors golf courses. And so that in 50 years that we don't let that go away as our evolution of, of architecture and its timeline and its time and, and place. Yeah. And in the next episode, we're going to go down the list of architects and golf courses that should be destroyed and blown up and <laughs> papered over. <laughs> we'll let you get, we'll let everybody know uh, what, what's, what's fair game and what's not. <laughs> but see, it's not for us to decide. It's, it's really, and I guess I'm kind of deciding for myself and Ian that strands should be preserved. Some of them. It's the developers. It's the owners. It's the people who own the property. It's their golf course. They could do what they want. But think about the architectural lineage of how Strands got started, working for Fazio as a shaper, and then he's an artist, and then he starts to evolve with his own designs. That's a times capsule in itself. Mm-hmm. That should be preserved. Absolutely. I mean, if you only have less than 10 golf courses and they're all worthy of a visit, that they should be preserved. There should not be a, a George Thomas course that is screwed with, you know. I can't. I can't say that it's. I. I totally agree with you. I can't say for sure, but ten golf courses of Thomas's, man, we should do everything right. in our power to help them be themselves. And I would. I would like to say. I would like to think that everything that Dick Wilson and Robert Trent Jones did should exist in some form. Now I can't say for sure because I. I've only seen a fraction of them, but. Because it's historic and it's made it this long, but you know, if should every Jack Nicholas Nicholas design course be preserved? I don't know. You know, it depends. Or all four hundred and fifty Donald Ross courses be preserved? Mm -hmm. If he never even saw some of those, uh, with all due respect, yeah, should they be preserved? But if Ian Andrew designed ten golf courses before he moved on to the to the to the outer world. Should we should we enjoy and see what Ian Andrew had to offer for those ten golf courses in his architectural uh, career? I think so. Yeah, people would argue with me because people would say, "Who are you to decide, Jim Urbina? Who are you to decide what's architecturally sound and worthy of preservation and what could be blown up?" I don't know. Bring him on. <laughs> Bring him on. <laughs> Well, we'll, just, we'll uh, yeah, we'll we'll settle we'll settle that another time. I just wish we could have talked to Ian about that. I, I I apologize, Ian. I wish we could have gone down that road. Well, Ian is Ian was always one of the best guests uh, that we've had on this podcast. And if if you get a chance to listen to Ian on other podcasts, try it. He's one of the most thoughtful, intellectually engaging people in the business. Um, always has a unique perspective on things, and he's not afraid to say what's on his mind. So he'd be happy to weigh into this conversation if we want to have him back next time, I'm sure. I'm sure. Because when he talks about Stanley Thompson's borrowed scenery and he talked about 
the people who are the builders of the soul of the golf course. Those were always, those were all very entertaining to me because I believe in that truthfully. Uh, Mackenzie was a person who borrowed scenery. There's no better view than standing on the first tee of Pasa Tempo and looking down to the green and then seeing uh, uh, Cypress Point, uh, the Monterey Peninsula point in the distance. If that's not borrowed scenery, I don't know what is. Well, let's leave it there, Jim. That was a great talk with Ian. Good talk with you. Can't wait till we get a chance to do it again. <laughs> I got to cut it off. I mean, we could keep going and going. I'm sure, you know, if anybody's still listening, then uh, <laughs> well done. They're right? as- hang in there. They're, asl- they're asleep at the wheel. <laughs> you must really <laughs> love architecture if you're st- still here listening to me drone on and on. <laughs> Good for you're you, here Derek. for I know you're all here for Jim. It's okay. <laughs> I can handle it. Good for you. Good for you, Derek. All right, Jim. Thanks. I, I enjoyed it. Thank you. I did too. Farewell. <laughs>